Titus uh, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 and then into chapter 3, uh, all the way to verse 8 this morning. I think we're all well aware that we as Christians are increasingly finding ourselves at the margins of our culture. Uh, we really live on the outskirts of our society. In his work, The Secular Age, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor affirms this reality as he explains that the way people today hold theological convictions and religious principles is far different than how they used to. Uh, he says religious belief seems to now be optional for people. Uh, he further argues that our culture has undergone a, a massive shift uh, from it being almost impossible to not believe in God to now it's almost impossible to believe in God. In fact, Taylor writes, to be a candidate for tenure at any major American university is to inhabit a world in which it is virtually impossible to believe in God. And so that is the world that we live in, a post-Christian society. And the reality that we face as the church is that most people no longer have any interest in God and religion, or in our current generation, no real intention of ever attending a church to hear about God. Even on holidays like Easter and Christmas, people aren't going to the traditional church services as had been in the past. If you think about your neighbors, your co-workers, most of them, the only reason they might go to a church service is because of tradition or because their great Aunt Mary has guilted them into going to the service. Today, most people name the name of Christ only as a swear word, and sadly, many churches are just content for that to remain the, the, to be the case. They're content to live on the outskirts of society, marginalized because it's comfortable to live out there and not get into the mess of our society. Some churches even champion the doctrine of separation in their disengagement from culture. Now, don't get me wrong, there's certainly the doctrine of separation in the Bible, but I don't find disengagement from our world in the pages of Scripture, nor do we see it in the life of our Savior. The truth is, instead of creating a further distance between us, the church, and our culture, the reality of our marginal status being on the outskirts of our society should give us an opportunity as the church to rediscover and reignite our call are called to be on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we saw that a faith-filled church is a gospel-centered church. Paul grounded the call to godliness in the nature of gospel grace. And so we saw that rooted in the past grace of Christ's work on the cross, we're now living submitted to the present grace of the Spirit's training in our lives and expectant of a future grace in his promised return. So we said that grace saves, it trains, it waits, it redeems us. We're no longer lawless, we're now eager to do good works. Today, as we near the end of this letter from Paul to this young church planter, Titus, Paul repeats this cause and effect relationship that we've seen throughout the book between faith and our practice, between our belief and behavior. Paul isn't just a broken record, though. He knows what is important for the churches that Titus is leading, especially in the culture of Crete. He knows the corruption of the Cretan culture and how it was finding its way into the church. And so understanding that danger, he here 
as we move into chapter 3, he graciously guides Titus and the church to once again live out the truths of the gospel, but here he exhorts them to do so in front of all people. And so this morning, in this passage, what Paul wants Titus, the churches in Crete, and I believe what he wants us to understand is that a faithful church also is a church that lives on mission. You see, being gospel-centered isn't just about getting the gospel right for ourselves. It's about getting the gospel out to others. We can become very comfortable with getting the gospel right for ourselves, knowing all the theology and doctrine, without getting the gospel out, the good news, without declaring that good news to the world around us. As individuals saved by the grace of God, we're now, as Paul instructs us, to live out our faith in front of those around us. The gospel that we declare is the gospel of God's grace and mercy to the undeserving. So listen in as Paul exhorts Titus here to this faith-filled mission, starting in verse 15 of chapter 2. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. This is God's word again for us this morning. So let's thank him for it. Let's ask him to work through his word uh, in our hearts this morning. Father. We are grateful uh, that we get to even open up your word. We get to sit under the authority of your word, knowing that it is spoken from you. And it's spoken from you to a people like us. Uh, That you've revealed yourself through the word so that we might be changed. We might be changed from our sinful state to a state that is seen as an heir and a child of you. So, Father, this morning, through these words... Uh, Change us as a people. Affect our hearts with the mercy that you give to us in Jesus Christ. All again for your glory and our joy in you. In your name. Amen. Here in these verses, Paul describes what life on mission looks like. He shows us that it is living toward others in humility, living motivated by mercy, and living as messengers of God's grace. Again, what I believe God calls us to in this passage is to live normal, everyday lives with humility because of his mercy and to do so on mission with the good news of his grace to all those around us. Notice, first of all, in verse 15 of chapter 2, as Paul writes, Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Here, Paul is opening the door for what is to come in chapter 3. 
And in doing so, he reminds Titus and the church as a whole what its message should be and who is primarily responsible to protect the message. The church's message is the glorious gospel of grace. It must be proclaimed and it must be protected by its leaders. So while chapter 2 and verse 15 is primarily an address to Titus, really the whole verse informs the church, informs us of our posture that we should assume toward the gospel and towards leaders who protect it. We should have a posture that is eager to hear the gospel. As, as Paul writes, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Our posture should be one of eagerness to hear the gospel, knowing that it will encourage the faithful and it will rebuke the unfaithful. This is the means of motivating and directing us as a church, as leaders proclaim the gospel of God's grace, as they encourage and rebuke. Let us not disregard those who proclaim that good news. And so starting off here in verse 15, he now transitions to explaining how this is seen, not just in the inner circles of our home, as was the case in chapter 2, but now in the outer circles of our relationship with those in our society. And so first of all, we observe to live on mission is to live toward others in humility. Flowing naturally out of chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul here returns to describing in verses 1 and 2 how the church should live informed by the grace of God in this present age. And so he reminds them what their conduct is to be, again, in light of God's grace. They are to submit to rulers, authorities, obey, be ready for every good work, and the list goes on till the end of verse 3. Or verse 2, showing gentleness to all people. At first, when we read that list, it doesn't seem all that impressive, does it? Basically, he's telling us to be good, obedient citizens, eager to serve, kind, peaceful, and courteous. I mean, that doesn't seem too hard, does it? Uh, We've got this covered so we can just move on to what's next, right? Well, that's... Not exactly what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to stop here and show us once again that these are areas of self-control. Remember, he's been beating that drum for the last chapter. Again, he shows us, as he chips away at the tendency of our human hearts, that it's not just worshiping our own desires. That's not what we are transformed to do. We're to worship and find full satisfaction in Christ and him alone. You see, those who are not self-controlled, find their satisfaction in something else. Because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, that means that these kind of actions that he lists are evidence of God's grace in our lives. They're the training work of God's grace, as we saw last week. In order for one to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities, one must assuredly be able to trust in someone greater, a greater king. For one to be quick to serve and then slow to slander or fight, one must first lay down one's own desires at the foot of the cross. When we place our interest of another person, the interest of another person ahead of our own interest, when we esteem them better than ourselves, that's not a matter of just sheer human willpower, but that's an act of God's grace in our lives. So when grace has so captured our hearts, The aroma that the world smells is both sweet and attractive on God's people. 
Because it's the aroma of Christ who humbled himself not to be served, but to serve, considering others more important than himself. And so it's this aroma of humility that Paul is addressing here, and that it begins in the heart as God changes our hearts and and creates within us a movement outward towards people. So that's Paul's main concern here in this passage, not just inward focus, but an outward focus. And so he would conclude in verse 2, always showing gentleness, or what might be better translated, humility, to or toward all people. This is Paul's primary concern for the church. Not just to have a, a good reputation, but to prove or to always be showing it to be true. His concern is that the church would continually demonstrate humility, not only with one another, but especially as they live with the world. And to do so even in the midst of a hostile and perverse culture like Crete. So essentially what Paul says here is we are to live toward others in humility. That's simply what the mission, uh, what it means to live on mission. When we see Christ's command in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples, he gives us a direction in our lives. And that's what Paul is explaining here. Our direction as disciples is to live toward, to go to all people. Mission then, writes one author, is not an event we tack on to our lives. It is our life. It is the way and direction that we live. We live a life of godliness that reflects or adorns, as he said in chapter 2, the very God and Savior we call our Father and claim to worship. And we do that in front of others. Now, growing up, when I would hear the word mission or missionary, I often thought of a certain category of people. Uh, And for the majority of my life, I grew up with all of those missionaries listed at the back of the bulletin. Uh, And every once in a while, you would hear from one of those missionaries. What Paul's saying here is that all of us are called to that work of moving toward people with the message of God's grace and his mercy. We are to live a way that reflects, adorns the gospel of grace. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible might recall that this is exactly what Jesus prayed for his followers in John chapter 17. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. John chapter 17, we hear Christ pray in verses 9 through 18 he says i pray for them that is his followers i'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me because they are yours everything i have is yours and everything you have is mine and i am glorified in them i am no longer in the world but they are in the world and i am coming to you holy father protect them by your name that You have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and that and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. As we jump down to verse 14, it says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And listen to this in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified 
by the truth. You see, just as Jesus was sent into the world to dwell, to neighbor among us, so too Jesus is praying that we would be sent into the world to live, to neighbor, to dwell with those around us. Again, that's what Paul is getting to here at the beginning of chapter 3. That we would live lives submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, not slandering, not fighting, but kind and always showing gentleness or humility to all people. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. Living toward all people seems like it could get very messy, doesn't it? I mean, when we actually start to live toward or looking to serve our next-door neighbors or our co-workers, that can get awfully uncomfortable, can it? I mean, it's far easier to just keep our distance from the world. We can certainly share Christ from a distance, can't we? Maybe it's just dropping off that track and then <laughs> running away. Uh, maybe they'll read it at some time. You see, if we're honest, isolating ourselves is extremely tempting for us, primarily because we fear. We fear a discomfort. We fear what others might say about us or even do to us. So we're tempted to live in isolation from, uh, from the world rather than toward, moving toward all people. That's why we cluster ourselves off in holy huddles, church friends. We, we like to keep our distance. But what Paul says here and shows us is that we are to have a movement toward people. Again, reflecting the nature of our God who moved toward us. And that that happens in the norm of everyday life. It takes place in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes. Tim Chester writes, When we think of evangelism, we should not think, first of all, of evangelistic courses, services, events, street preaching, or door knocking. You see, living on missions is not simply that we live good lives that enable us to invite friends to evangelistic events. No, our lives are the evangelistic events. We reach a hostile world by living normal lives in the context of ordinary life, and we do so as everyday missionaries, as everyday sent ones. And so the question for us is, do we see ourselves as sent ones? Do you see yourself as sent to the neighbors that live right next to you? Do you see yourself as a sent one to the co-workers that you work with? Are we living toward others in humility, on God's mission? Are we making the gospel attractive to our neighbors? Do they even know us at all to smell that sweet aroma of Christ in us? Now, this is something that God has worked and is currently working in my life. Because if I honestly admit to you, I'm one of those individuals that want to just isolate, uh, stay distant, from people, not get into the mess of people's lives. I feel like I'm going to get taken advantage of, uh, that they're just going to walk all over me. And so it's easier for me to just do my own thing and try to invite this individual to somebody else to explain the gospel to them. Uh, and what I have to be, what, what this passage does for me, and again, looking at the life of Christ, it shows me that that kind of attitude that attitude of isolation, it doesn't reflect the heart of my Savior. This heart attitude instead comes from a lack of love. A heart that's more selfish than selfless. 
And so here are two quick ways that I think we who are tempted to isolate ourselves can start to apply what Paul is teaching us here. First of all, becoming a regular somewhere. Mike does a great job of this at Beans and Cream, and some of you have joined him in that. You've become a regular at Beans and Cream, and so people know you. You know their story. They know your story. So maybe it's a cafe. Maybe it's a restaurant that you as a family go to. Maybe you as a young moms, you're taking your children to a park on a regular basis, and you're meeting other moms that are there. And hopefully as you're interacting with them, they're starting to sense a difference. So become a regular somewhere. And then look for ways, practical ways that you can serve your neighbors and coworkers. And maybe it's the weeds in your neighbor's yard that are so frustrating to you and the rest of the, the neighborhood because they, just, they need to keep their lawn clean. Uh, maybe you can take it upon yourself and your family to serve that neighbor. Pull those neighbor's weeds. Help them out. Help a coworker move. Maybe it's at work. There's something that needs to be done that you can go out of your way to show and make the gospel attractive in how you work. Maybe it's calling us as a church together to join you uh, as you open up your home to serve your neighbors with a cookout and letting us come alongside of you and show the love of Christ with one another. Because you see, our city desperately needs normal, everyday people like farmers, like factory workers, teachers, secretaries, small business owners who think and act like missionaries, who think and act with the mercy of God on their lips. They proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in their lives, but not just with their lives, but with the words that they share. You see, to live on mission is to have a direction toward all people. Are we living in that direction? But it's also to have a heart full of compassion and mercy, to see people the way Jesus does, to see people the way Jesus saw us. That's what Paul reminds us of next in verse 4. He says, remind them, the beginning of verse 1, and then in verse uh, verse 3, sorry, he says, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Paul is drawing a contrast between how we are to act now and how we had acted before we met Jesus Christ. This reminder of our past should be a powerful motive for humility and kindness as we move toward those not yet believing in our lives. You see, if we're to clearly see our need to extend the mercy of Christ and the gospel toward all people, We must know the nature of our sin and our helpless state. Our past is clearly drawn here. We too were once foolish and disobedient. And this certainly levels the playing field, doesn't it? Paul reminds us that we are no different than the world around us outside of God's grace. So that foolish neighbor of ours who continues to ruin his marriage and family, we're looking into a mirror of our past. The disobedient child of ours, that was definitely you and I before. That coworker that's always looking for the way to move up that corporate ladder, no matter who he or she steps on, that everyone dislikes at work, that is who we once were. Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, full of malice and envy, such were some of you. 
You see, this verse, verse 3, functions as the reason or why Paul gives us the appeal for good works directed toward others. There's nothing inherent in any of us that makes us worthy of God's mercy and love. Many of us who have grown up in the church find it hard to identify ourselves in verse 3. But again, what Paul's doing, he's getting deep into our hearts. He's showing us the real us. Oh, we might have gone to Sunday school class every single Sunday, but we were disobedient and foolish. We were deceiving ourselves. Oh, we might have grown up learning all the memory verses, but we're still slaves to various passions and pleasures. But notice what he says next in verse 4. That three-letter word that Paul uses many times uh, to redirect our attention from who we once were to now who we are. He says, but, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. To live on mission is not only to live toward others in humility, but to be motivated by mercy. What was it that transformed us from disobedient to obedient? From slaves to all kinds of passions and pleasures to being gentle toward all people, ready for every good work? It was entirely the mercy of God. He and his kindness and love for mankind, that's a a stark contrast to who we once were. God has come running to us, pouring out his mercy on us. You see, he's talking about each of our experiences of mercy. Notice here in this verse that God acted first. God, our Savior, appeared as we, as we just sang, were running away from him toward eternal destruction. He pursued us. In his kindness and love, he stepped onto the scene on our behalf. God in mercy is the initiator of our salvation. And you can almost hear it in Paul's voice as he's reflecting on his own conversion. A persecutor of the church, zealous for the traditions of Judaism. He's seeking to destroy the church, but when the kindness of God, the Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved me. He continues on, not by works of righteousness that we had done, not by all the works of righteousness that I had done, but by his mercy. The truth is, all we could ever bring, as he's just pointed out, is our foolishness, our filthy rags of sin. Jonathan Edwards explains it with these words, we contribute nothing to our salvation, but the sin that made it necessary. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, our sin was what brought Christ to the cross. Our sin nailed him there. But our sin was no match for the mercy of God. For God's mercy kept Christ there. And so Paul continues, but according to his own mercy you and i had nothing to do with it it was all of god's mercy the gospel emphatically denies the possibility of attaining salvation by any human effort or merit we're saved by grace through faith not of ourselves 
It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one, none of us can boast. But how did this happen? Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we'll spend a couple weeks just on those truths. But basically what Paul is saying here is that this is not something you and I could work up because we were dead. A dead person can't do anything. They're dead. Spiritually without a heartbeat, no pulse, nothing. But God in his mercy placed his spirit within us to bring about a new birth. He took what was dead and made it alive through Jesus Christ. He made a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. Paul continues, As if we haven't been amazed enough by the mercy, he writes, So that having been justified by his grace, we become heirs with him or with the hope of eternal life. The aim of God's salvation has been accomplished. While our sin brought guilt and condemnation, when we were given mercy, we were justified. justified, were declared righteous, given a standing of acceptance before God, and then called an heir, a member of his family, As we saw last week, our identity has been changed from enemies to heirs, children by his mercy. And the present reality gives us a future hope of eternal life. Our present experience of mercy gives us an exciting foretaste of a future inheritance. Again, Paul is showing us that our God is a saving God, a merciful God, a grace-giving God, and a hope-fulfilling God. Friend, if you're here today and you have have not yet experienced God's mercy in Christ. The truth is that, like each and every one of us, you have nothing to offer God but your sin, your foolishness, your disobedience. You hold before him only filthy rags of your sin-cursed life. But the good news is, because of Christ, verses 4 through 7 can be your story too, just like it's our story. If you turn in faith and repent of your sins, you can say, when the loving kindness of God, my Savior appeared, he saved me. Oh, it wasn't because of anything that I have done, but because of his mercy. And so, friend, repent today and experience God's mercy. To live on mission is to live toward others in humility, but it's also to be motivated by mercy, by the mercy of God. And finally, we see it's to live as messengers of grace, that we're quick to speak of this mercy. Again, if we truly understand who we once were, verse 3, and then what has happened to us in verses 4 through 7, we will be people who are quick to share that good news. Our good works are not sufficient on their own, but we're to proclaim this news. We're called to declare his mercy, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for that hope that's in you. As we live humbly toward all people, we create a context into which we can speak the mercy of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul exhorts Titus to insist on these things because this saying is trustworthy. In other words, Titus should stress this good news of God's mercy in Christ to sinners again and again and again so that it would have its training effect in our lives. And in doing so, It would produce a devotion to good works. And that's the logical outworking of a true understanding of God's grace. And not only good works, 
but also opportunities to declare God's grace. Notice that the benefit of doing this, the end of verse 8, that it is profitable for everyone. It's good for all people. Once again, Paul exhorts Titus and the church in Crete, even us today, to engage the world with this message of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Doing what is good benefits people. Declaring his mercy benefits people, not just by changing certain aspects of their lives, but by transforming them by God's grace, just like we have been transformed. When our faith and practice match, that gives ear to our message that we proclaim. And so again, as one author writes, a humble confidence in the mercy of God is very attractive to those outside the Christian community. Disciples like this are attractive because they exude in, I am probably worse than you, but God saves bad people like us. I know my sin, but I know his mercy is far greater. So the question for us this morning is, are we a church that lives like this? Living on mission, living toward others in humility. Is that the direction of our lives, or are we content to isolate and distance ourselves? Are we motivated for this mission by the mercy of Christ, knowing who we once were and now who we are by mercy? And are we messengers? Are we quick to speak this grace for the good of others? If we have been transformed by mercy, what's keeping us from sharing God's mercy? Again, being faith-filled is not just about getting the gospel right for ourselves, but getting it out to all people. So may we be a church that joins Jesus on his mission. As he was sent, may we see that we are sent. Not because we want to see this church grow, but because we want to see the mercy of God change lives. Not because we like to hang out with unbelievers, but because we want to see God and his grace change our friends, our co-workers, and our neighbors. There's a song that's been written just over the last couple, uh, last year, entitled, His Mercy is More. Listen to these words, and then we're actually going to sing it together. We're going to learn it this morning. You should have received it as you came in. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? But he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Father, this morning, we want the words of these, this song, and more importantly, the words of this passage to be on our lips, reminding ourselves of who we once were in our sin, 
and then sharing the good news that your mercy is far greater. And we want to not only share that with ourselves and preach it to ourselves, we want to preach it to the world around us, to our kids who are still, still foolish and disobedient, enslaved to their passions, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our other family members and friends. God, give us a heart of mercy, a heart of mercy that moves toward others in humility, a heart of mercy that is quick to declare the good news. God, make us those type of people. Make Christ Fellowship a church that does not just say they are gospel-centered in their words because they want to understand it themselves, but they're gospel-centered because they get the gospel out to the world around them. Do all of this for your fame, do all of it for the good of people in our neighborhoods, for the transformation of their souls from darkness to light. In your name, amen.